Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Professor Steve Keen is with me. And today, do minimum wages reduce inequality? Well, minimum wages are contentious, aren't they, for some reason? Obviously, less so if you don't earn much. But then some filthy capitalists seem to think that minimum wages are a bad idea. They'll say it makes labor too expensive, so their companies are less profitable, so they can't grow, and therefore they can't employ more people. So by insisting you get paid more, you're actually stopping other people getting paid at all. Well, often it's, it's actually not uh, the capitalists, the company owners who argue against minimum wage. Fairly often it's economists. But Steve Keen is not one of them. Well, he is one of them in that he's an economist, but he's not one of those uh, leveling that argument. He believes there is a need for uh, minimum wages. But Steve, here's, here's an example from uh, a, a writer in the US, Mark Perry. Actually, he's professor of economics and finance at the University of Michigan. He's also got a, a blog called Carp DM. He says... Higher minimum wages result in lower firm profits and higher retail prices, which is a form of legal plunder by workers from employers and consumers that is objectionable, he says. <laughs> he says a, a $15 minimum wage maximizes the pro- probability that an unskilled worker will be employed at $0 an hour instead of being gamefully employed. Wow. <laughs> I, mean, it's pretty, I mean, this you is can. pretty full. This is an economist who's just say, saying like it is. He sees it, basically. Yeah, and unless you're prepared mm. to work for peanuts, uh, then yeah. you, won't, you won't have a job. You, you no, are, I mean, you're, you're worthless unless you work for next to nothing. I think there's a, this is one of the times that a reductio ad absurdum actually helps quite a bit. And, uh, of course, the logical consequence of that is that if you pay workers nothing, they'll be fully employed. And uh, and and one of the, the best examples of that with the, the true witticism of one of the great writers of economics, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, he once said, you can summarise mainstream economics on the proposition that the rich don't work hard enough because they're not paid enough and the poor don't work hard enough because they're paid too much. <laughs> but there's got to be a balancing line, hasn't there? Somewhere in the middle. I mean, I mean, well, if, if you made the minimum yeah. wage four hundred dollars an hour, for example, then we'd have a, we'd have a problem. Yeah, uh, but what we'd ha- what we'd have is a macroeconomic problem, and this is the this is the trouble that the people who do this sort of thinking and, and, and they they dress it up as if it's uh, economic science. Uh, almost always work from the little microeconomic diagram where you draw a supply and demand and then you can if you push up the uh, the, uh, the the price that the people that demand for supply well demand has to fall mm. you move the curves around and that presumes you can move the two curves independently of each other right now this is a little piece of uh, um, f- fallacious logic that is so common in mainstream economics because the labor it, it, this is makes certain sense when you're talking about the market for apples or the market for uh, 
hair tweezers. Happen to be holding one in my hand for some bloody reason right now. Um, you know, I mean, if, if if you trebled the price of hair tweezers, I dare, I dare say the number of hair tweezers being sold would fall because there's not a lot of demand that comes out of hair tweezers for buying other objects like, for example, let's go for a glass, which I'm also carrying the other hand. Um, so there's no dramatic feed-through effect from dropping, uh, in, in increasing the price of tweezers on the on the, whether there's more or less demand for glasses. But if you increase the price of labour, well, there may be more demand for glasses. They won't have something to drink their beers in, which they can finally afford. Yeah. So it's it's this it's this feed through effect that these guys leave out of thinking completely. So on those on those two lines, where you're saying uh, supply and demand, where one can't move independently of the other. If you move one, actually the other one it it, it moves as well. It's basically what you're saying. So at the, yeah. at the macroeconomic level, we're, we're paying more for everything, but we're all earning more. Yeah, and then then the question is, what's the impact of this change in income distribution on how much demand there is? Yeah. Uh, the, the trouble is when they, when you have people think like that guy thinks uh, and then dressing it up in a moral terms as well I mean it's morally morally offensive to pay workers more money it's morally better to pay them less and it becomes a message from the 19th century I can almost see Ebenezer Scrooge giving the lecture uh, with rather less forcefulness than this guy did I must yeah. say <laughs> no. it did seem a bit over the top and he's in Michigan yeah. he's a, this is the University of Michigan where you know lots of uh, car workers are uh, unemployed there's a lot of people doing it tough I would have thought they'd yeah they'd Probably don't want to hear his views his, too much. Yeah, yeah, and, and they've got a feeling he might have only few them throwing windows, throwing bricks through his windows. They might get some more work replying his broken glass. <laughs> So what? So the minimum wage is very different in different parts of the world. In the US, it's uh, seven dollars twenty-five an hour. In the UK, mm. it's seven pound twenty per hour. In Australia, it's seventeen dollars seventy per hour. So if we change all that to US dollars, it, today's exchange rate. Exchange rate is a bit all over the place at the moment. But seven dollars twenty-five for the US versus nine for the UK, thirteen for Australia. Australia is getting close to twice the US minimum wage. Um, so what's the impact that's having on on the various economies? Well, not a lot. Right. <laughs> because what you, you get, you, that generates macroeconomic demand at the other end. So what you're seeing is, does that mean the distribution of income is fairer in Australia than it is in America? Now, it's not, it's certainly got less fair over time, but certainly the income distribution is less skewed in Australia than it is in America. And what you what one one of the problems of this sort of thinking is that they're not looking at the question of once you're paying somebody a wage, what do they or income of any sort? What do they do with that income? Do they spend it? Do they hoard it? Now, if you hand over more money to capitalists, he's saying, oh, "Whoopee, do they've got more money? They're going to invest more." Mm. Why? Who are they going to sell to? Yeah. Uh, if you know, I mean, if, if, and also. Are they going to spend as much as a worker would spend if they're given the same amount of money? And therefore, giving if you, if you actually allocate more money to the capitalist and less to the worker, does that mean that spending is going to rise or fall? The answer is probably it's going to fall. And then this is this is one of the problems that, again, the in, inability to think in what's called an oblique fashion that mainstream economics is built upon. Everything is linear. You can extrapolate from the micro level to the macro uh, quite successfully. All these sorts of things are what lead them astray, and yet they put them out as wisdom. And you can't answer the questions with the type of tools that that Michigan, uh, there's a... 
professor of economics. Professor of economics is a man of, of good standing, Steve. Professor of economics and finance. <laughs> uh, the uh, bit like I think that's a very similar job title to your own, I think. But I mean, I, it, okay, that's why I call myself an anti-professor, anti-economist when I get introduced <laughs> socially. But I mean, the uh, but the argument is, of course, and I'm sure this professor would be pushing this argument himself. If you've mm-hmm. got somebody who is a, a capitalist, a, an, an entrepreneur, to use that mm-hmm. uh, to use that misused word, um, and you give them money, they are obviously going to create new enterprises, create new things that we didn't realize we needed, uh, which we are then going to buy, which is going to create wealth. You know, they're going to create uh-huh. that supply that creates that demand, that creates the jobs, that makes everyone uh, wealthy, and we all live happily ever after the end. In the house that Jack built. Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a fairy tale. And if you want to make it from a fairy tale into an actual piece of analysis, then you have to say, what are the flow-through effects of doing these sorts of changes? If you increase the minimum wage, does that uh, increase aggregate demand as well? And he's saying the increase in price will mean people of weight labour will mean the level of labour employment falls and overall uh, the, the therefore eliminates the, ma- the, the macro argument by saying, in fact, there may be less less uh, labour and less, less work taking place. Uh, it is not a simple question of microeconomics, and this is the trouble. The only real toolkit that neoclassicals have are two intersecting lines and the idea that you can isolate demand and supply in each market and whatever happens if price rises, demand necessarily falls. That's that's the, the crutch they fall back into all the bloody time and they put it across as wisdom as this guy is doing, and it is not. It is an inability to think in a complex system, say, way and look on what the flow-throughs might be. And it's also, and this is one of my main bugbears, it's reducing capitalism to a two-class game. It's saying if you take it off the if you if you take it off the capitalists and give it to the workers, that's the only option you have. But my little you know, I hammered so much I'm getting sick of it myself. There are three social classes in capitalism, at least, and mm. the most the important third class is the financial sector. And if you take the money off, if you if you give workers more money, you may end up taking off the financial sector, not off the capitalists. Yeah. And this is this is where my complex systems view comes into place, which is why I'm feeling moderately confident in arguing that increasing minimum wages does not it will actually possibly be positive for employment, because. When I just look at that incredibly simple model that was the foundation of my my analysis of Minsky, I had I can effectively derive that that model from just three simple definitions. One is the ratio the ratio of employment to population, the employment rate. Another is the wages share of GDP, which is where this income distribution issue comes in, aggregate wages divided by GDP. And the third is private debt to GDP. Now, when I dynamize that and put it in a simple model, and I have a model in which I say borrowing is only done by capitalists, so capitalists are borrowing money to finance investment, I have no Ponzi behavior at all, it's strictly doing it for building factories which employ people, et cetera, et cetera. What you find is that if there is a trend towards rising inequality, then it's not the capitalists who gain out of that, it's the financial sector. Right. The workers lose, the financial sector gains. So if you then say, well, okay, uh, we're going to push up minimum wage, there will be uh-huh. some sort of, um, uh, the, the, you know, some sort of inflationary effect that results from that, um, mm. which, b- which, uh, which, which, may, which may or may not be a good thing. But, uh, but, but, the, but the benefit of that is that uh, it's almost taking us back to that age before this financial class took over and we started to get steeped in debt. We're back to the stage where, okay, they've got more money in their pocket. They spend it. They buy more stuff. We need more factories mm. to produce stuff. That employs more people. That's the basis of your argument. Yeah, fundamentally, we've let the social class that matters in terms of screwing the rest of us from getting too much of a distribution is not the workers. It's the financial sector. 
And in that case, if the if the increase in the minimum wage uh, reverses the trend that comes out of the basic system dynamics that rising debt means falling workers' share, then rising workers' share, which you push in by a government policy of bringing a minimum wage, may, I'm not saying it will, but it may, reduce the ratio of debt to GDP and reduce the wealth of the financial sector without affecting capitalists all that much. And by doing that reduction in debt, take a debt burden off the economy and actually enable the economy to grow more rapidly. So where does where do people like this professor get their thinking from? I, I know it's, you know, as you've said, it's from people who've got this uh, microeconomic view. And yet, you know, it, and it, there's a lot of people like it. But it's, I'd argue perhaps there's as many economists who actually see it the same way that you do. For example, the World Economic Forum, you would have thought would be a fairly robust organization. I'm quoting from them. They say, data shows that inequality often starts in the labor market. Therefore, a broad package of coherent labor market policies, including minimum wages, is vital to tackle inequality and ensure that economic growth benefits everyone. So, I mean, it's it's a it's fairly accepted wisdom, isn't it? That we need a minimum wage. So, if we if it's accepted that we need one, um, then then arguing about um, you know the level of it surely is just tinkering at the edges. Yeah, but you've got people like this guy saying it should be there should be no such thing. I mean, if yeah. you actually poke an economist, you'll get a view saying this: we just leave everything to the market and it'll all work out perfectly. Uh, which we have eminent proof of over the last 30 years, obviously. Um, this this is the the crazy situation because it's I, I've, I always the analogy I make for mainstream economists is that they're basically like Ptolemaic astronomers. They have an intricate model of the real world that fits the data, except for the occasional appearance of meteors that smash up the planet. And uh, and likewise, economists have a model that perfectly fits the data until things like financial crises come along, which they don't factor whatsoever into their thinking. So what they're doing is, is their thinking is pretty much the same as somebody looking up at the sky and saying, look, the sun is obviously orbiting the Earth. And if you think otherwise, there's got to be something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. OK. And we've pr- proven that one wrong. But maybe this professor uh, in uh, in Michigan might uh, might still think the uh, sun goes the other way, perhaps. Look, look the um, we're talking about that that disparity around the world. The uh, the Gini coefficient is a fairly good measure of that. And mm. although I'm only picking three here again, you know, I was looking at the UK wage, the US wage and the the Australian minimum wage. The Gini coefficient pretty much maps that. So the it, for the US, it, mm-hmm. a, a high Gini coefficient is bad. The US is 0.81. The UK, where the minimum wage is halfway between Australia and uh, the US, is 0.69. Australia, which has the high one of the highest minimum wages in the world, is 0.622. So as you say, uh, you know, Australia is becoming less uh, uh, less egalitarian, but still a hell of a lot better than the United States by a long chalk, it seems. Yeah, and and this factor then means that there's more mass uh, mass market income distribution and potentially more sales taking place. So mm. in that sense, people actually selling stuff out factory doors may do better out of the minimum wage uh, rather than worse. And this is again thinking obliquely about it. This is Henry Ford. I mean, uh, I found all sorts of Henry Ford that I don't particularly like uh, in recent times. I've realised he's an anti-Semite and a major intellectual. Um, uh, support for Adolf Hitler. Uh, not, not exactly what I like about it there, but what he did was when he established the Ford Motor Factory, he said he wanted to pay his workers a wage which meant they could actually buy what they were producing. And that attitude and his, his, his he was one of the very few capitalists well, actually, it's not quite true, but uh, I think I've got more time for capital than I have for economists. But uh, somebody who's capable of saying, I can see beyond my own individual situation. So an individual employer, I might want to pay the lowest wage I possibly can. His attitude was, I want to pay a high wage. 
Mm. And, uh, and of course, that, what that, that had lots of positive feedbacks for him as well. He got a loyal workforce out of that. Yeah. People were proud to buy the product. Um, his workforce became his advertising staff as well. So all these sorts of things imply that the ability to think beyond your own personal circumstances and, and put it into an aggregate picture is an essential insight for an economist. And that's why I call myself an anti-economist, because turkeys like that bloke in Michigan actually encourage people not to think beyond their own personal circumstances well, and they and it, get analytically wrong. Well, it, 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 it's ironic that he's in Michigan, obviously, which is the birthplace uh, for Henry Ford's uh, Ford Motor Company. But, mm. I mean, we, we look back at the Industrial Revolution in the UK and how many towns uh, where you had uh, benevolent capitalists. I mean, you know, they were doing it for their own end as well, but, you know, they helped provide the housing, uh, the, the standard of living that, uh, you know, wouldn't be what we'd expect today, but was certainly an improvement where people came from. Uh, and and you know some form of social um, and, and welfare system. The, the the capitalists were providing that to get the workers to work for them and to stay working for them. Yeah, I guess. yeah. And then, of course, a company like Cadbury's, of course, still exists today, and were founded on that egalitarian principle of uh, you know sharing the wealth. And this is one reason. Again, I come back to my energy analysis uh, as as a way of trying to put some sense around this and say how is it possible for two social classes to both benefit when you're giving more to one of them? Uh, and that is because what we're really doing exploiting the free energy we find uh, in the universe to turn it into goods and services and capitalists and workers collectively do that do that together as a social endeavor and if you can find a, a way of encouraging uh, that to be done more productively by everybody you may actually generate more wealth that way rather than less so it's 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 both an inability to think in more than terms of two social classes that that makes neoclassical spout nonsense disguised as wisdom uh, but it's also failing to understand that it isn't a case of a contest between workers and capitalists where, where the income comes from. We're collectively mining the energy resources we find in the planet and the uh, and the universe. And if we do it more efficiently, there's more for both of us. Right. We have two traits that define the world, though. Here's the rub, I think. We've got low-cost producers who have a trade surplus, but low living oh. standards and low wages. And we have first-world countries with high wages but a trade deficit, like the United States, that's got a big one, uh, which oh. Donald Trump probably quite rightly has recognised as a problem for them. Uh, he wants to remove the trade deficit. They want a better living. They want a better living standard in those in those other countries. So, uh, how do you find the middle ground where everyone gets where they want? Because what they want, do you start to say to these third world countries? Then, will in- increase your minimum wage, and that's going to level things out. Well, this is another. Uh, this is a one for a, a more than one individual podcast. But uh, what you have is a, the basis of a lot of that industrialization in the third world has actually been first world cap- countries shipping their production facilities off to third world countries to take advantage of those low wages. Yeah, and that was happening long before China got on the game. I mean, I I wrote my uh, first uh, paper on. Uh, multinationals and tra- transnationals relocating production uh, in 1979 um, I think and what I argued there was that uh, you could you can imagine two economies uh, that are going on swimmingly both you know full employment and and, and and good growth rates. Uh, one, which is the the home for a multinational uh, company like, for example, America. The other, which is a host to one of those countries like Australia, uh, where that might be. The, the, it just didn't actually happen directly, but imagine it was uh, General Motors uh, in, 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 in America and General Motors Holden in Australia. 
and the decision of the executives over in Michigan was to shift production from Michigan and uh, and uh, Melbourne to Malaysia, let's say, mm. and produce cars there, and then export those cars back off to the two target markets. Well, what you have as a result of that is a fall in the wages of the workers in both countries, both America and Australia, an increase in the wages in Malaysia, but from a very low base. And effectively, you and you also have capitalists in Malaysia benefiting out of that as well, because they 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 provide infrastructure services to. General Motors to build a new factory and so on, and supply and they become the suppliers rather than Australian or American suppliers. But as a result of that, there's a distribution of income in America from the workers to the capitalists, which reduces the aggregate demand for cars in America. Yeah. Now, in Australia, of course, there are no capitalists to benefit from it because all the capital gets repatriated. The workers fall. So you've got a more severe fall in the demand on the in the host country than in the home country for the transnational. And there's an, then there's an increase. That clearly, the workers in the third world benefit out of this. The capitalists probably benefit even more. Uh, a dramatic increase in living standards there. But it is definitely a transfer of wealth and income from the working class of the first world to the working class of the third world at the benefit of the of the capitalists in both in both, both those places. Those, yeah. So part of the reason Donald Trump wants to tax imports from Mexico, I mean it's exactly the same situation that you've been describing there, uh, is because whilst the US is, you know, striving for this minimum wage of $15 per hour, the workers south of the border are getting that much uh, you know, a, a week I think. And you know, so if we said in Mexico uh, they had a minimum wage, say half that, even just half that of America They'd still have a competitive edge, uh, but wouldn't they have more money to help the local economy? And wouldn't they then be, as an economy, growing faster to the stage where they could actually buy more American goods? So, in other words, you know, as you've been describing, isn't it in everyone's interest, particularly when you've got two countries so close to each other with such a transference of, uh, of money in each direction, that they are as closely matched as they can be in terms of the, the wealth and prosperity of each country? Well, there comes there's a there's a complication there, and that comes down to the way what's the quality of the infrastructure and the capital that those different uh, uh, countries are working with. Again, the energy way of thinking about it, I think that makes it clearer to, to understand it. We, if you look at the general state of Mexican industry, uh, it doesn't have anything like the capability to exploit free energy that English, the American industry has. Uh, the most extreme you can take extreme examples like uh, the Falcon Nine rocket. Uh, you wouldn't be making that in Mexico. Uh, but just, I actually had a little analogy, by the way, I, I, I loved to get this sort of information. The Falcon 9, uh, when it blasts somebody off into orbit, is burning nine tons of fuel a, a second. Right. Okay, uh, that's compare that to the uh, to the what steam engine, how much that consumes per second. Um, that's that's the change we've had over time. Now Mexico is further behind on that progress than America. So you, if you did put in a higher minimum wage in Mexico to make it comparable to the Americans, the, the economy couldn't cope with it in that sense because it would then be sucking in imports that can't produce the goods that workers could then buy. You'd have a trade. Uh, they'd be running a massive trade deficit when they're trying to run a trade surplus to industrialise right now. So they have to be behind the curve on the Americans. But what you, when you've got that, of course, what's actually happening, and this is the reason Trump largely got elected, in my opinion, is that you're screwing the workers of the first world. And American capitalists are quite happy to do that. Uh, and so is Trump, for that matter, uh, when in, in wearing his other hat. One of one of his many hats. Uh, so this this sort of thing can't be resolved by minimum wage changes, and America has actually caused the situation it's now complaining about. But if you did it over time, 
if you were to say, well, okay, yeah. let's let's gradually increase the minimum wage. So, um, and isn't that the best thing the West can do? To, um, for example, uh, you know, uh, if the US says, well, we'd like to see uh, living standards improve, we believe that the way that living standards will improve in Mexico is by seeing wages go up, so that the uh, so we have you know the, 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 uh, the more closer pricing parity. You'll never quite get the same as the United States, but at least heading in that direction. So we're going to buy from companies that have got a reasonable minimum wage. When we import, what that's going to be mm. our focus. Or would that destroy the ability, which I think is what you're saying, for those you know developing nations to actually grow to the stage where they can build enough for their own domestic consumption and therefore become a more balanced economy? There's got to be no, a balance, there's got to be a balancing line here. There, there is a balancing line. I, I think it's, it's ultimately what is happening out of relocation of production to third world countries has been, particularly in China's case, a, a rise in the standard of living overall. But that's because they've been trying to capture the technology and cap- capture some of the uh, capital that's accumulated out of this as well. So as well as getting the wages, that I think I've mentioned this before on, on a podcast, the Chinese rule when they when they let American companies locate their production in the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone, which is the first one they established just north of Hong Kong, uh, as well as getting, say, take advantage of our low wages, they said, and also you have a partner, he's got to be Chinese, uh, we yeah. might introduce you to this commissar we know, and uh, he, within five years, regardless of the capital he actually puts into the business in year zero, he has to own 50% within five years. Now, the terms of the, the advantage that the American companies were getting out of the drastic cost drop in the cost of production by cutting wages as much as they did uh, and by establishing brand new factories rather than having rust belt um, ones as well, of course, the advantage was so great they were willing to accept that deal. Now, that's what's given to rise to Foxconn. Uh, so it's you've got it, it isn't just a case of saying let's pay the higher wages. You've also got to have something that captures some of that uh, technological and financial benefit for the local economy, as the Chinese did. Because as well as being uh, wanting to build a, a capitalist, you know, the old it doesn't matter what colour the the cat as long as it catches mice, Deng Xiaoping statement. Uh, it was also about getting the technology because the Chinese Communist Party is dominated or was then dominated by engineers, and they bloody well wanted the latest technology, and they knew the fastest way to get it was to get Americans to bring it over, and uh, ultimately they got ownership and they could take it apart and rebuild. So it's 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 a complex mixture, but certainly uh, if, if just if you think about it, again a reduction of a certain rule, that guy's argument, the Michigan Michigan economist's argument, really argues well. Oh, if we actually, if, if the trajectory of wages head towards zero, the economy is doing well. That is not the definition of a well-functioning economy. It's put it in a reduction of absurdum terms. You can see there's something wrong with the logic. Okay, final question: If the US was to do something very drastic, I mean, they're you know they're wanting to get their minimum wage up to uh, fifteen US dollars, um, you know, which is uh, twice what it has been. If they did that, if they made a big leap in minimum wage. Uh, what would be the short-term impact on the economy? Obviously, some inflation because uh, wage rises exceeding the rate of uh, labour productivity growth is definitely the cause of inflation. So but that's, that a, that's, inflation. A, that's a good thing. At the moment, they want to cause it. Absolutely, yeah. people say. And I quite I get students saying to me, "But won't that cause inflation?" And I say, "Yes," and that's what they're trying to do right now and failing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing how people have got this bloody bogey stuck in their minds. Even kids who weren't even born during the high inflation days of the 1980s worry about inflation. It shows how much we can get nonsense into the psyche. Well, historically timed nonsense into the psyche of the populace is amazing. So yeah, so short term, it would cause inflation. Be a good thing. Hard to find a reason not to do it. The other, well, the other one, the other danger is that uh, you have a huge trade deficit change. 
Because if you suddenly can buy more and your factories can't produce it and you have an increase in your own cost level as well, then unless you have a, a matching change in your exchange rate, you're going to be importing more. Yeah. And that, uh, that is a danger. Particularly Australia would have a hard time with that right now because we don't actually have any factories in which to produce stuff to sell. So an increase in wages is likely to go offshore. Right, which is then when we get back to uh, maybe uh, Trump is right on some element of protectionism. And it's obviously it's a yeah. it's a complex picture, uh, but we've, we've, we've hit the nub of the issue anyway uh, on this one, I think. Good to talk to you again, Steve. We'll catch you up later on in the week. Okay, mate. And I think next time we're going to have a look at uh, lies, damn lies, and employment statistics. The U.S. has just had uh, their latest reading, the what's called the non-farming payroll that came out on Friday. It's got the unemployment rate in the U.S. now down to 4.5%. Uh, so apparently the economy is going gangbusters. So what's the problem that Donald Trump and all the people who voted for him, what are they going on about if unemployment is so low? Uh, Steve doesn't believe the stats. We'll find out why next time on the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.